Welcome to the Being Giants podcast, a show by academics for academics. I'm one of your hosts, Joyce Yeager, and today you'll hear my conversation with Dr. Kate Voss. We love to hear from you guys, so please follow us on social media and keep in touch. Thanks for listening, and we hope you enjoy the show. My guest is Dr. Kate Voss. Kate was the 2019 AGU, or American Geophysical Union, Congressional Science Fellow, which is part of the AAAS, or American Association for the Advancement of Science, umbrella of science policy fellows. She served in Senator Tom Udall's office for her tenure as an AGU fellow. Kate received her Bachelor's of Science in Science, Technology, and International Affairs at Georgetown University and her PhD in Geography and Water Resources from the University of California, Santa Barbara. She's worked as a lecturer and adjunct professor at UC Santa Barbara and Georgetown. She's currently a sustainability consultant and is in the interview process for some very cool jobs that we can't explicitly discuss quite yet. I'm really excited to talk with Kate because her background and experience in science policy is really interesting to me, and I think her story is kind of unique in that she got an earth science PhD with the intention of bridging the science and policy worlds. Kate, thanks so much for being on the show. Thanks for having me. It's great to be here. My first question is, what was it like to work in the Senate pre and during pandemic and the 2020 election? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, So life in Congress, I would say changed dramatically with the pandemic. So prior to the pandemic, a lot of my day was really focused on meeting with constituents, key stakeholders, advocacy groups, maybe prepping uh, memos or speeches or, you know, assisting the senator with um, a press release or something like working with the communications team. And so the day was really divided into these like 30 minute time chunks where I was running around meeting to meeting Um, kind of transitioning among these different groups and really trying to get a lay of the land on what the, you know, citizens of New Mexico care about, Um, but then also some of the broader federal policy. And then once the pandemic hit, obviously we weren't having in-person meetings anymore. And so there was a pretty distinct transition to, you know, or I guess maybe a slow transition, a learning curve on on how to operate in this virtual environment. And uh, ultimately, I think you know, everyone in the Senate figured out how to do that effectively. But switching to that Zoom world was definitely a bit of a, a transition. On a personal level, I think I missed the, the opportunity to interact with people directly and to actually, you know, get to see them face to face. But I think we still were able to do our work effectively and and listen to um, the constituents. So yeah, that's that's kind of the pandemic definitely shifted just the day to day. And then obviously, too, it became this critical issue on what do we need to do in the federal government to make sure that people's livelihoods, health, um, everything is taken care of as well as it should be. Um, And that was obviously an ongoing process with the former administration, and then still even with the current administration, just figuring out how to respond to this really significant um nexus point in our society so yeah and did you like I guess yeah there's like a a two-part question I guess like did you were you mostly working on science policy issues or were you doing all kinds of things before the pandemic and then like what percentage of your work became pandemic related after that started yeah, so mainly for me, the portfolio that I was in charge of or was assisting on was the natural resources, environment, climate, energy portfolio. And so 
some of the bigger pieces of legislation that we were pushing forward. One was a, a, the Break Free from Plastic Pollution Act. Another one was called Fair Returns to American uh, Taxpayers for Public Lands, which was related to the Mineral Leasing Act and public land access. So in terms of the, the science policy work, I would say that stayed about constant from pre-pandemic even through pandemic, just based on the portfolio of topics that I was most involved in. Um, you know, we have staff that are specifically focused on health and education and some of the issues that were hit hardest by the pandemic. And I think kind of those, the natural resources side of things um, maybe wasn't as in, impacted. Although I will say, you know, with the plastic pollution bill, for example, we kind of you know, leaned off of some of the intense messaging on like single use plastics, all that, because in a pandemic you have to, for sanitation and for kind of protection, the, the use of single use items and plastics was really important. And so um, that was an interesting, you know, shock to, I guess, what we were focusing on and transitioning really our narrative around why the bill mattered and um, was still significant. So yeah, that's, I think, maybe the first part of the question. What was the second part of your question? Sorry. I think it was, yeah, like, if if that workload changed a lot. But it sounds like maybe it, it didn't change it didn't significantly. Really. Oh, that's yeah, cool. I, yeah, it didn't really. I think mainly, again, just because, like, my little niche within the office was, I mean, maybe when I, the fellowship ended in August 2020. And so around that time we were starting to think about recovery and maybe um, the economic stimulus and how the environment can and kind of sustainable transitions can be part of that economic recovery. Um, and so I think that those conversations were starting to happen, but it was right when my, my fellowship ended. And so I haven't been involved in the, you know, more recent discussions on, uh, which are, you know, all the current pieces of legislation right now focused on green infrastructure and electric vehicles and kind of carbon and all those really exciting uh, pieces of climate legislation. How how big is Senator Udall's office or how big was it? Yeah, so we had both the D.C. and the New Mexico staff. And so D.C. staff, I want to say there were about 30 of us and then New Mexico, I think about 20. So in total, it was a it was a team size of around 60. And I think that that was kind of the breakdown where it was like two thirds in DC, a third in um, New Mexico. And you know, that's I, most Senate offices operate that way where you have your DC staff and your kind of home base staff who can be there on the ground to really understand what's happening in communities, what's happening with constituents, like just having faces in the state as well. That team is divided among two folks working on, legislation, folks working on kind of those constituent relations, and then also the whole communications team and, you know, putting together press releases and news articles and social media and all that. So it's a really dynamic workplace where everyone has their specific role and uh, a lot of collaboration on a day-to-day -day basis just because you you really have to collaborate. There's a lot, When you're trying to represent a state and also on every single issue that falls under federal policy, you know, there's, there's more than, there's more work than 60 people can handle. And so it's, it's a lot of um, just working as much as we can and trying to 
to support each other. Yeah, how cool. And it was Senator Udo's last year that you were there for, right? He didn't seek re-election. And so what was that transition like? So I left in August and his, the end of his term was in December of 2020. And, you know, it was really actually an exciting time to work for him because he always was a leader on so many issues, both in kind of campaign financing and also the environment, obviously. And because it was his last year, I think it was this opportunity to put out some really big ideas and set what maybe the high bar should be on those topics. Like knowing that maybe the legislation wasn't going to pass, but at least setting the high bar and then passing the baton on to the next uh, generation of senators who will pick that up that work and really lead it. So it was an, it was a really exciting time to work for him in that sense. Um, and yeah, I, I thoroughly enjoyed observing and learning about how, how does Congress operate? What's the role of an individual Senator? What's the role of a staff member and what's the role of, you know, everyday Americans in terms of defining policy agenda and really moving ideas forward. Uh, so cool. I remember, I think I spoke with you like a month or two after you started, and I remember you saying something along the lines of like, the relationships between congressional representatives um, on either side of the aisle are actually much less kind of negative than they appear on TV. Did that like, did that stay pretty true? And like, can can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think I can talk a little bit about it. I think... Um, what I observed is that behind closed doors or just in those moments in between when cameras are on or whatever, even on the Senate floor, if you watch C-SPAN or want to just tune in, you can go to senate.gov and just watch a live stream of the floor. Everyone is really cordial and collaborative. And, you know, these are folks that have known each other and worked together and are essentially coworkers, uh, and so their demeanor and their relationship with each other, I think, is is one that is really based on a mutual level of respect. Uh, and I don't think that always gets picked up in the media or portrayed in, in the media. And, and that definitely stayed with me and was something I observed throughout the whole fellowship year. There's really to get any type of legislation done, you do genuinely need to have bipartisan cooperation and I think people are, are interested in finding those areas of common ground rather than in finding conflict. There's, there's an incentive and kind of an interest in collaborating and trying to figure out, you know, maybe California's top idea or New Mexico's like big idea doesn't fit for Vermont or Arkansas or Idaho, but you can still have those conversations to figure out where the middle ground is and where everyone can benefit from a policy. And so I think that's kind of the exciting work of Congress is fitting, figuring out how to fit the puzzle pieces together so that it can, it can create something new. Wow, cool. It's a, it sounds much, uh, much more uplifting than I think it can feel sometimes right now. And, it, and it's almost, is it like more of like a... I don't know, the fast media landscape that we're in, is that the main reason why it can appear from like the outside to be so kind of like vicious? Yeah, I'm, I'm not totally yeah. sure where that really intensely contentious uh, vibe 
or like projection comes from, if that's truly just media or if it's also a approach to gain like news so that there can be press so that then ultimately if you have like the whole line of no, was it bad press is still good press, like no press is the worst. So maybe if that's where it's coming from and, you know, seeing disagreements and fights sometimes is more entertaining than seeing people just chatting. I, I'm really not sure. There, I'm sure there's somebody who has studied this, though, and who, you know, has an entire dissertation on why the media portrays some of these topics in such an extreme light rather than, um, you know, in the kind of mundane, but like good mundane of like, oh, yeah, everyone mostly just gets along and respects each other, which I think is it for me. Yeah. And I think as what just echoing what you said, like, it's nice and feels good to know that it's actually functional. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, exactly. How funny. Do you think you could talk a little bit about like how the AGU and AAAS fellowships work and how you got a placement in Senator Udall's office? Sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I maybe it's helpful to explain why I was interested in the fellowship too. Like, would that provide some insight? So I think the, the fellowship program, it's just a single year, which a lot of DC operates on these really uh, deep relationships that take time and to build and that level of trust. So I think a caveat of the fellowship is you are only coming in for a year. And so there's only so much that you can do in that time. But um, my interest in the fellowship was really to get a look under the hood and understand this inner working of Congress. And when you have an idea on a policy, what does it take to move that idea to a final law or piece of legislation? And just as a, you know, as an everyday citizen and somebody who's worked in advocacy before, like, how do we, how do we move ideas forward? What does that process look like? What are the roles of external stakeholders, of NGOs, of advocacy groups, of, you know, just everyday constituents calling in? What's the role of a staffer? What's the role of the elected member of Congress themselves? And then how does, how does it function in terms of even when a bill is introduced, what happens next? What do committees and hearings? So understanding that from start to finish, what does this whole race look like, I guess, in terms of getting an idea to law. And so I think the fellowship really is set up in a wonderful way to do that. And as you've mentioned, the congressional science fellowships are kind of under the umbrella of the AAAS, the American Association for the Advancement of Science uh, Fellowship Program. So most fellows, I think there's about 200 folks in total, and I think about 160, 170 are all in the executive branch. And then there's about 30 to 40 who are all in uh, Congress and the legislative branch. The legislative branch fellows are typically sponsored by a science society. So I was sponsored by the American Geophysical Union, there's also the Geological Society of America, um, the American Physics Institute. Yeah, it's like basically any science society that you're a part of, American Meteorological Society, has a fellowship that they're, or fellow that they're sponsoring each year. A couple of them actually have two. Um, so we kind of form our own co cohort within the broader AAAS umbrella, but we under, we, enjoy and partake in the same network, but also the same 
training at the beginning of the fellowship year, which is this two weeks drinking out of a fire hose, your civics 101, schoolhouse rocks that you've like totally forgotten. And now you're going to learn about in full detail because you're living it now rather than just learning it. So uh, we all go through that. And then it's a really just unique community of scientists who care about policy and care about, uh, I guess, the well-being of our country and communities. And so it's a really cool group of people. I think we're all a bit self-selecting in a way. And it's, for me at least, one of, and I knew that the, I would get that value of the, you know, look under the hood of Congress, but also, you know, the folks that I've met, the community that the AAAS uh, folks develop in terms of connecting all of us and having us do this training together. There's a lot of social events as well. Weekly happy hours is, is really just amazing. They're kind of lifelong relationships, I think. And again, just nice to have people who you can bounce ideas off of or frustrations or successes who understand the significance of um, what what you're doing. So Yeah. And I think the other cool thing about those fellowships is like they, ha- they have people like you who came in pretty soon after grad school, like after finishing their PhDs. But then they also have like sometimes tenured faculty who are taking a year off to like try something new and I think yeah that's kind of cool it's it's like a little different than some fellowship types right yeah so there's people who have just finished their PhDs there's people who are years out of their PhDs there's definitely you know yeah tenured faculty members who take their sabbatical year to come do a fellowship and I think it's a it's a really because it's only a year I do think it's a unique way to kind of test the waters on if science policy is something that you're interested in. And if so, then, you know, continuing to pursue it. And if not, then going back to research or going back to like the think tank NGO world or industry or or whatever. So I think if there, if you have an interest, anyone who has an interest in what that science policy looks like, both in terms of how science informs policy, but also how policy kind of shapes science or, or, you know, drives what, uh, what is being looked at in the science community broadly, uh, is, it's a, it's a, it's a great way to get that perspective. Cool. Are there things that you think that a lot of scientists might have like misconception wise, either about what the day to day might be like, or about how science and policy interact? I'm trying to think back to conversations that I've had with people about, you know, asking, what does this fellowship do? What, what are you, what are you actually involved in? I think maybe one of the biggest misconceptions is the role that science can play in making decisions and inform in kind of providing evidence for policy. I think there maybe again, this has been misconstrued by broader public narratives, but you know, being precise and accurate is important in Congress. If you put out a press release or a statement or a speech and you claim that, you know, something is like a number or some science-based thing and it's not true, you'll probably be fact-checked and you'll probably, you know, be slammed a little bit for not having an accurate uh, statement. And so having that scientific understanding and having somebody who understands how to conduct 
research and really synthesize information and communicate those find, findings effectively is is really a skill that's that's valued. Uh, so I think you know science people do care about science. I think perhaps the biggest challenge and I I've heard this you know a lot from people who are frustrated with trying to do science communication or like science policy outreach is that, you know, no one actually wants to listen or um, incorporate their ideas. But I think there's two components to it. One is that it just takes a lot of time to build trust and relationships with staffers and with members of Congress themselves in terms of being that point person as a resource on any given issue, right? Whether that's climate change or plastic pollution or water quality or, uh, Ag- something agriculture related like to, to if you want to be the point person the scientific point person or provide input you kind of have to build trust in a relationship and then the second component is a lot of times we as scientists are just terrible communicators and so you know really honing that science communication is important I think that even was a useful skill that I thought I was coming in with but Congress helped me to hone that even more in the sense that, you know, I would draft up a, a brief or policy memo that I was like, all right, this is like half of a page. I really condensed it down and then would get, have a colleague turn around and be like, well, actually we just need like three bullet points. Can you like narrow it down even more? It's like, well, but there's a lot more context here. I feel like it's important, but that's, you know, I think as scientists, we often want to get to 100% of understanding something and providing all of the context and all of the detail. But sometimes just getting to 80% is really all that's needed. And pursuing that extra 20% sometimes might not be worth your time in the policy world and might just make it more convoluted for the people that you're trying to inform. So learning how to communicate the right amount of information in the right way, I think is a challenge. Um, and, and is certainly something that all of us can improve on, I guess, regardless of if we're scientists or not, but definitely for the science policy world, I think that's something to, to work on. Yeah. I love that. I, and I don't think I've heard it put that way that like, it's, it's like we just over context everything in science and it's like, no, no, we don't, we don't need that. Just like, just give me like the icing or whatever. So your undergraduate degree was in the policy world and then you and you did a PhD in geochemistry and I would love to hear one how you got interested in policy as an undergraduate and then two how you decided to go into geochemistry for um, a PhD after that. Yeah definitely. So I I have noticed that that's a little bit of an anomaly within the physical sciences, often people, especially in hydrology or geochemistry or geology, have an undergrad degree in that before coming into the PhD. For me, when I, so as a high school student, I guess, going into deciding on my undergraduate major, what really drew me to Georgetown and to the School of Foreign Service in particular was this opportunity to start looking at science and policy. So my undergrad degree, the actual program that I was a part of was science, technology, and international affairs. Very heavy on the policy and economics, a little bit light on the science side of things. Um, But a lot of that interest came from my experiences in high school being involved with the Surfrider Foundation, which is a very grassroots-based community 
focused uh, nonprofit. We're really looking at ocean, um, ocean conservation and access. And I had interned from with them during high school, and you know, really just that approach really resonated with me and understanding how the the role of policy and politics in uh, in both ocean conservation and ocean health, as well as that public access component. And I was also coming from Orange County, California, kind of looking to burst out of this, the orange curtain, as they call it sometimes in this bubble world. And so it was nice. I think there was, I had this huge interest in the world and in understanding our just global society and some of the issues there. A lot of, no one in my family had really had traveled internationally and for, and so it was something that was like, oh, well, this seems important, like international affairs and kind of this science and policy, like maybe that, that will be cool. And definitely envir- like the environment focus had always been important for me. It was growing up, I thought I was going to save the tigers from extinction. And then I transitioned more toward like, maybe I'll be a marine biologist. But I think Georgetown really helped me narrow in and hone on the role of science and policy and particularly that intersection at water resources, because I was, I realized in a way that a lot of the issues I cared about, both in terms of humans and like human health and societies and community well-being, as well as in environmental health and, you know, whether that's wildlife or kind of the natural landscapes that I grew up enjoying. So the ocean and the Sierras, like those, I find, a lot of my happiness in being outdoors and in those places. And so both in protecting and preserving the environment, but also in, you know, supporting communities and maintaining livelihoods and people's connection with the outdoors. Like, Oh, water is a, an interesting place that intersects all of those things. And Georgetown, I think gave me a lot of the lens of the, that kind of international relations, community based, um, or community-driven organizing, the kind of role of formal political structures and economics, as well as informal kind of political avenues, things like at like just more grassroots advocacy. And so Georgetown, yeah, helped with that, both in my formal academic training, as well as I studied abroad in Thailand and New Zealand. And that kind of added additional layers in Thailand was working with the whole program was based on grassroots advocacy and environmental activism. And so it was, you know, how do you build campaigns around issues that matter? So, a you know, a community that's soil and water has been contaminated by a gold mine or a community that's been flooded out by a new hydropower dam. How do we build momentum to push back politically against those things or to, you know, have some type of, um, support for people who have been affected in that way. And then New Zealand was just amazing in the sense of how do we incorporate indigenous knowledge and wisdom into planning around resource management. So it's particularly there learned a lot about the role that the Maori play in informing New Zealand's policies and just seeing that as a, a model that the United States is severely lacking um, I think to its overall detriment, maybe it's starting to come around a little bit with some of the fire management stuff right now, but, um, yeah, that's Georgetown really helped with that. And so I think I gained from collectively that undergraduate experience, a deep understanding of policy and economics and 
also kind of that community, community driven work and advocacy. But then realized that, you know, the, the technical side was a bit lacking in terms of really understanding where are our, how do we map out our water resources in terms of their availability, their quantity, their quality, the timing and how that's changing over time, especially with, with climate change. And so that, that really peaked for me after undergrad, I worked in Nepal and Peru for a year each on high mountain watersheds. So really looking at glacierized water systems and trying to both quantify how those resources were changing with uh, glacial retreat, but then also work with communities on what they could do to mitigate the impacts of some catastrophic events or water scarcity if they were to occur. So floods and, and droughts, how do you, how do we manage water in a really, when it's really a dynamic time with, with climate change and kind of these, I guess, I don't really like saying the frontline climate communities and these, the communities that are really experiencing effects most severely. Cause I think everywhere, even here in California, right, we're, we're really seeing the effects of climate change on a day-to-day basis. So that, I think that experience then drove me to want to go get a PhD and to really start understanding water from that technical side so that then I could, my, my perspective on it was if I understand technically and can like read the reports on water, like a a hydrology report or analysis assessment of water, then that will allow me to create more effective policies or to help shape advocacy campaigns or policy in a way that is actually going to be beneficial and not just, yeah, getting policy so that it's going to be beneficial both for the environment and for communities and not just something that fails in five years. So, yeah, because I guess if, if you don't have the science background, well, it's I mean, I'm not a hydrologist and it's hard to conceptualize, you know, what groundwater is, how water is all interacting. And like, yeah, it's such a dynamic environment. So I can see that like, yeah, it's like a very vital piece of policymaking. And it's so short term, but it's also long term. Yeah, I I love that. Oh, go ahead. Oh, yeah. I, I would, yeah, just to add on to that. Yeah, it's this question of if you're going to, if you want, like, if your goal is to have healthy groundwater resources or kind of sustainable groundwater resources. Well, like, how do you actually do that? Right. And I think step one is having that core scientific foundation on, well, what's already there, how, how is groundwater being recharged now? Like, is it from natural systems from like spillover from irrigation? Like what's, what's happening and how are that, how's that changing? And then what are the main uses of groundwater that are causing that depletion? Is it, agriculture? Is it industry? Is it, you know, what's happening? And understanding that hydrologic context then allows you to identify your portfolio of policy options, because there's probably not going to be one silver bullet. There's probably going to be a few different things that have to happen at different timescales. And maybe some are more contentious than others, right? Like if if you want to just remove all of agriculture from the Central Valley in California, sure, that could like help the environment, but that's not actually going to help communities and people. And so finding those options and those por- that portfolio of policies that actually 
serves uh, whatever function and end goal I, it, from the hydrologic perspective, I think is is really important. Yeah, and it's so interesting too. Like, I feel like water is such a, a famously, um, you know, an issue without borders, but it like really affects a lot of border disputes. Like, I remember hearing about even I think like Georgia and Tennessee have like a really contentious like mile or something that's all about water resources, and that's probably happening all over the world. And yeah, yeah, yeah it's interesting. So one of my colleagues at Georgetown, Mark Giordano. He a lot of his work has focused on the fact that people actually haven't fought war. You know, water wars isn't necessarily a thing when you're talking about like country level conflict. Um, but at kind of that subscale at, at the state level or at the community level, I think there there are a lot of tensions and there is a lot of um, controversy over how water is being used who's and who's using it at what time and how much i think you know i was just driving down the central valley just to use california as an example again driving through the central valley and there's still tons of signs you know people hurting in the agricultural community who are really being affected by the drought who are seeing their livelihoods kind of wither away and are frustrated by the lack of movement on either groundwater changing groundwater resource availability or recharge or surface water supply and it's it's definitely i i would say it's not a you know it's definitely tense it's not all um sunshine and and rainbows and so it's not a war per se but there are you know there are tensions there um and it makes me and i foresee a lot more kind of challenges when we're looking at just continued, I guess, demand for products and for that type of like manu- the role of manufacturing and like technology, right? So a lot of the like tech data center, a lot of the tech world is actually really focused on water because to run data centers and to run um, tech manufacturing requires a lot of water. And if you're, you're set up in Arizona or, you know, Southwest United States or, you know, the Middle East or South Asia, you're not, it's not a bountiful, it's not just a boundless supply of water resources. And so, yeah, I, I think even across industries, there's, there's tension. So not per water wars per se, but definitely a, a very complex challenge with a lot of people and stakeholders and industries and economies really that are um, in the balance or need to find a new balance and a new equilibrium, which will again be constantly changing because of climate change. So, you know, any solutions, I think any solutions have to be uh, flexible and dynamic and able to adjust with these changing both changes in the environmental system and in the climate, but also in society and like what our different priorities and demands are. So, yeah. Wow. Cool. So I thought it was so funny that you studied abroad in Auckland because I don't think that we've talked about it. And then I saw it like when I was looking at your CV or something and I was like, how did this not come up? Um, But I am so excited to hear that like the, the core of that program was like, incorporating Maori knowledge into science because that's something I'm personally really interested in and I guess from a water resource perspective it's very much in conversation 
all over New Zealand, but especially here in Christchurch, there's a lot of water contention um, in Canterbury and and like problems with agriculture and like um, yeah. And I guess one of my questions was like. How did that experience in Auckland inform your work with um, working with like New Mexico constituents? Like, were you able to seek out, I guess, indigenous perspectives on some of these issues? Did you have the opportunity to do that? Yeah. So in terms of, I think, that lesson and definitely in New Mexico. So the... Uh, yeah, the tribal communities and indigenous population in New Mexico is, is huge. And I think what was wonderful about working with Senator Udall is that he deeply respected and wanted to actively incorporate those understandings into um, our legislation and into our policies. And so, like, yes, like definitely like that there was a lot of trying to make sure that we touched base with um, any, any tribal stakeholders on any pieces of legislation just to be like, does this work? Are we missing something? What would you do differently? Um, I think that, so in terms of like in the Senate, yes, that's kind of how I I would say that that those lessons were incorporated for my own. I think in particular that New Zealand experience really helped shape some of my dissertation research and trying to make sure that my research was community-based and informed by local knowledge and wisdom on water resources. So before I even started my dissertation, I did a four-month reconnaissance trip where I just walked around and talked with people about their water and what changes they had seen in their water and what concerns they had about their water resources. And a lot of what came out of that was I thought just really, you know, people being incredibly generous with me and willing to share um, their knowledge about how different groundwater springs had dried up or how snow lines had changed. And, you know, being able to just sit down and chat with a a great grandmother about where the snow had been when she was a child versus where it is now was really insightful for me on maybe – what I primed my brain, I guess, on what I should try to pick up for and what how I could steer my dissertation toward questions that were actually going to complement that that wisdom and maybe define it in a different way with, you know, more with geochemical language rather than kind of an oral history, oral tradition. Um, but I think that that, for me at least, and I chatted with a few friends about this who are in kind of this cognitive justice space in the sense of, and it's in line with like, um, the book Breeding Sweetgrass and, you know, really the, the outcomes, I guess, and what is being described is the same. It's just how it's described is different. So, you know, somebody's memory and physical lived experience with water will be defined differently than a geochemical mixing model result. They might no, the same thing. The end product might be the same, but I think it's just a different, just different terms, different language and vocabulary. Um, and so it's something that I, I tried to actively incorporate within my dissertation research. And I think is actually something science can do a lot better with respecting and trying to, to bring in other perspectives. Cause 
it really is just a win-win for everyone. Like it's, if you have people who are willing to share their traditional knowledge and wisdom with you, then like that's, that's pretty lucky and is going to provide even more detail than you could ever probably ever get from just a straight like geochemical or geologic survey or something. Yeah, that is so cool. And it's like they it sounds like they helped inform like what questions you even asked, like starting from that place, which is like uh, I'm, I'm like geeking out a little bit because I feel like that's the the really like the value of of your background in part is like one of the many things is that you went in asking the community instead of like I think a lot of us who grew up I guess in the physical sciences we would have just gone and and measured things because it's faster and because we don't know necessarily how to have those conversations and so yeah that's just like so cool to hear yeah yeah I, I feel like it's something that I actually try to highlight a lot I think for the geosciences I think we have a especially actually I take domestically or internationally I think there's a tendency to be a bit extractive in research and less um community focused and there's always an opera there are always stakeholders to engage right and so there's always going to be that opportunity to connect with an NGO or just locals who are around your field site or whatever. And I think building those relationships is really important because I think that context actually can help create better research. If your end goal is the top notch cutting edge research, I think that those types of conversations can help frame that research and make it higher impact, but also just as like a human and as like a, you know, global community member, I think ethically it's important to engage in that way. Um, And certainly there's other shapes like at the baseline I think is having those conversations in my own work. I tried to take it a step further by kind of having, I hired local Nepali uh, community members, school teachers as field assistants. And so kind of had them in, involved in the data collection as well to, to start bridging and sharing um, that as well. But that's not necessarily always possible given like funding or time or whatever but I think at least having the conversations hey guys Joyce here at this point in the conversation Kay has a pretty crazy coughing fit so we lost the thread a little bit here but I just want to say I was so stoked that this came up in our conversation we continue to discuss this the need for science especially geosciences to be better engaged with communities where we do field work and also respecting and incorporating community knowledge when we return and we discuss a couple of ways people can start practicing this in their own research we are really interested in making this a bigger theme of the show, so stay tuned for future episodes. But yeah, we jump back in in a slightly different place than we left off. Sorry about that. Here we go. Um, dissertation research was mostly in Nepal, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then I, I guess one of the things I'm thinking about is like, you know, we know that there's this problem of like um, scientists often not interacting that much with the communities that they're sometimes doing science in and and like their science can potentially help or or maybe even hurt and I guess like one one idea we could like give to people is like go in and do what you did reconnaissance on the ground where you're speaking with community members um I had a question which was do you speak the language or like did you have a translator like how did that work yeah so I I did have 
a, a translator, but I also do speak kind of basic intermediate level Nepali. And so going into the dissertation, well, when I lived there after undergrad, I started picking up some core phrases and, and pieces of the language. And then when I knew that my dissertation work was, or was able to know that my dissertation work would be in Nepal, did an entire summer Nepali language class at Cornell University um, to really continue to develop those language skills. I would say, you know, my, I could briefly in like a sentence understand or say, sorry, say what my, my research was, but certainly not at the same level of like the discussion we're having today. But even having that baseline language was, I think, really appreciated because not a lot of folks come in with that. And then the unique thing about Nepal is there's a lot of, most people learn Nepali as a second language anyways. They all have, um, most people have a, a mother tongue or two within their community that they speak growing up and then learn Nepali later in life. And so everyone kind of has Nepali as a second language, which gives gave me a little bit of um, wiggle room in terms of my poor speaking skills. Oh, that's so cool. Oh, awesome. Are there other things like I just wonder if it's almost like we should be or like universities should be like hosting more classes that are like helping scientists kind of I mean, I, yeah, both about like policy and about like community building like at least in my own education, those two things were kind of missing from like the curriculum and not available. Are there like other like ways to get scientists kind of more plugged into this community aspects of research that you know about? Yeah, I think so. I certainly think the whole education model could be shifted to include that type of um, community-based science or community engagement, science communication components to it. And I know some universities are trying to start adding those courses into their curriculum, both for undergraduates and grad students. Um, I also think providing small funding for it, right? So like having like a little seed grant for that type of community engagement, like whether that's hosting roundtable discussions or hosting, um, like a, just a community networking event, something like that. So the QUASI, which is the Consortium for Universities for the Advancement of Hydrologic Sciences Incorporated, they do a, uh, a like, let, it's called Let's Talk About Water seed grant funding, and it's typically a film event plus a panel discussion, and it's meant to be a public-facing event to connect scientists and researchers with the broader public and community. So... I think there are different routes and avenues. Certainly the fellowship programs. So in addition, AAAS has these executive branch and legislative branch fellowships, but there's also a mass media fellowship, which I think is a great opportunity. It's a summer program. It's only 10 weeks. So maybe a, a bit easier if people have other work or um, career obligations um, and that's a cool way to get that deep dive into the journalism world and into, you know, how does science come into play at National Geographic or at NPR or a local newspaper, for example. So, yeah, I, I think there's that the prong of, or I guess the, if we're thinking about 
buckets. There's the bucket of education and kind of how the educational model can be reworked. And then I think providing some clear funding and then also the fellowship type programs. Um, and I'll make sure that we link to some of these. We'll link to AAAS and like a, a, maybe the mass media fellowship. Okay, so you did the fellowship and I know now you're on the job market and it sounds like you're still really interested in like water resource management to put it in like the the blandest of terms, I guess. Broadest. And so I'm broadest. Okay. That's a nicer way. <laughs> um and I guess I have two questions. One, like what are you kind of envisioning for your future in the near or longer term? And also like how do you think about water resources um of the future if yeah I want to talk about that totally um I guess I can start with my own future so I think for me all of these different experiences have kind of set me up where I know I want to be in a, in a with a Venn diagram of science and policy and stakeholder kind of community work and engagement and advocacy where is the centerpiece in that? And those jobs are kind of few and far between, or at least, you know, finding the right fit can be a little bit challenging. And so uh, definitely, you know, finding the right job that that checks those buckets or checks those buckets, boxes, um, has been a bit of a challenge. But I think uh, there are a lot of different opportunities and definitely the time in DC and the fellowship for me, also highlighted in terms of my own career, the fact that I don't necessarily have to be in a formal policymaking role to have influence on policy. So working for a nonprofit organization or a a community advocacy group, or uh, let's see, like a, a think tank, or even industry, honestly, there's a lot of opportunities to move the needle on policies, especially with water, but I think also with education and health, whatever you know issue you really care about, in a way that you don't, you don't have to be in DC working on the Hill. There's other ways to, to, to push ideas forward. And so that was actually really encouraging to me because I was like, oh, like, I don't necessarily know if I want to be on the Hill as a staffer or, you know, run for Congress or anything like that. But I certainly am like, oh, there's ways to still influence those types of policies if I want. And also, I guess a step back from that is that federal policy is a bit of a slow moving machine. And there's a lot happening at the state and local level that ultimately trickles up and informs the federal policy making as well. So identifying different opportunities at the state and local level was also kind of on my my radar. But certainly I think a lot of what I find that I get the most joy and satisfaction out of is operating in these two worlds or having a foot in a in a lot of these worlds of science and policy and being that facilitator and that liaison among those different entities. So really being able to to take what the scientists care about or what the community cares about or what the policymakers care about and sharing that and communicating, translating that in a way that is meaningful for the other entities and groups and really being a convening force 
for for those ideas because I think there's a lot of opportunities for mutual benefit both in you know public private partnerships as well as um, yeah kind of that grassroots community driven advocacy and I think it's really part of it is just the strategy and kind of the systems level thinking of knowing who the key players are and what each player is capable of doing and then connecting them to, to start moving an idea forward and building momentum around that idea. And that's, that's where I envision myself as kind of as that connector, that convener to help start pushing and moving things forward in a very, I guess, inclusive way where all the voices of, you know, of all the stakeholders are really appreciated and incorporated into those decisions and into those um, actions. So that's kind of, I think what I would like my career to continue looking like. And I think in terms of like how that feeds in to water in particular, I think we're starting to move away from the old perspective of physical concrete infrastructure as the only answer to water resources and kind of recognizing that that approach to water management is based on an assumption of stability and of predictability in the water cycle. And we don't have that, that that's a, that's a invalid, that's a totally void assumption at this point, right? We, all we do know is that there's going to be more like, the water cycle is accelerating. There's going to be more extreme events. And the only certainty is uncertainty in terms of water. And so really thinking, you know, taking that and not viewing it as the, you know, the world is like the sky is falling. This is going to be terrible. But viewing it as an opportunity for creativity and collaboration and new and for new ideas to really fill in that space. And I think for me, this past year, I read All We Can Save, um, which I highly recommend for anyone. And I think that was, it really touched on a lot of, a lot of the essays in that, in, th in that anthology, that collection focused on the role of community and on collaboration and on really, you know, focusing on, okay, what can we do by bringing in new ideas, fresh perspectives, and really embedding those within um, within communities and within individuals. And so, yeah, I think the water water world is moving in that direction and and that's really exciting. So we'll see we'll see what happens. but my prediction for the future is that we'll hopefully move away from the the water wars but toward like very creative, very collaborative, ways to to manage our water i'm sure there will be some tensions within those like it's not all going to be perfect but i think that broadly our society is is capable and and willing to to do that and i think that that's that's the direction that will go so. yeah hell yeah i'm like Yes. Um, and I, I really like the idea that like water is hopefully one area where we'll apply this perspective to like, you know, conservation and like climate change and all, all aspects of kind of human impact on the world. And like hopefully we can apply that perspective. Yeah. So I, it's really awesome to hear from a scientist who's worked in policy that like it's hopeful it's a situation that like we have the tools hopefully to 
Yeah, I think I think we do. I think there's a lot of good ideas out there. They just need a little extra nudge to, you know, get rolling. I, like I look at some of the water recycling, water efficiency type solutions. Like those are amazing. Like that should be implemented everywhere. Or like urban water reuse for out, like rural agriculture. There's a lot of these connections that we haven't fully explored. And I think, yeah, great great opportunities there and like there's going to be roles for everyone certainly like the tech industry is really investing heavily in their own water solutions and maybe some like maybe some of those solutions will translate to broader public sector solutions i don't know we'll see i but i do yeah i feel hopeful about it because uh, better to be hopeful than totally not i like there there has there will have to be a solution so and create, create, yeah. I think maybe it's also as a scientist, right? Like we're in some ways too, like that, yes, like the nitpicking and like pulling apart possible ideas, but also really thinking creatively about, well, that didn't work. So let's try this other path or let's try this next thing. And yeah, and, there, yeah. Is, there is a real feeling of like endless possibilities. Okay, Kate, well, you have uh, really boosted my hope in like science and policy and politics, um, and so I really appreciate your time, and I can't wait to see uh, what your next job is and where you go in the future. So thank you. Thank you, Joyce. That's it for us this week. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. Please find us online, and we'll see you next time.